2: School of Humans. I'm not a good neighbor. I'm going to admit that. Like, I've lived in my apartment for three years. I don't know these people. I don't know their names. I don't know their business. But also, I'm not trying to get into their business because of... I mean, I would say it's out of respect, but it's really just out of laziness and fear of other people. But I will say, while I might be a slightly rude, standoffish neighbor, at least I didn't do this. At least I didn't write a book that featured a lot of details about my neighbor's private life where there was some inter-family cheating and then someone died by suicide at least I didn't write that book that is now considered the first American novel at least I didn't do that you know I didn't steal my neighbor's story and then sensationalize it so I could make a profit and then didn't even publish under my real name so that they didn't know it was me me a punk ass bitch at least I didn't do that guys okay but weirdly enough crazy that is something that did happen the book was called the power of sympathy it came out in 1789 and in today's episode we're gonna hear about the tale that inspired part of the book involves cheating death so cue the theme music This is American Filth. I'm Gabby Watts. Every week I tell you a filthy story from American history. This week's episode, the Perez Morton Affair. Okay, do you guys remember the episode about Anne-Carrie Randolph? Uh, she went on to later marry Governor Morris, but remember... She was accused of fucking her sister's husband and then having a baby by him and then killing the baby and then killing him. Well, this story today is an affair that's very similar to that, where you have a younger sister sleeping with her older sister's husband, but this time it is for real. Yes, it was not just accusations. So let's get into it. The older sister in today's story is Sarah Wentworth Apthorpe. That's right. What a beautiful name, Apthorpe. She was born in 1756 in Boston, and she would go on to be a very well-known poet in post-revolutionary America. Her contemporaries even dubbed her the American Sappho, but she wouldn't publish her poems until later, You know, women at the time, they weren't really out here hustling, grinding, trying to get their shit published because, ugh, propriety. How impolite a woman published? That's crazy. So really, a lot of her poems were just circulated amongst her friends and little (laughs) literary circles. But later on, she would start publishing under a pseudonym, Thelena. And the thing is about her work is a lot of her poems featured heroes who are either black or indigenous. She had one poem called The African Chief, which was an early abolitionist work, which probably pissed off her family because she came from a long line of slave traders. Her grandfather was Charles Apthorpe, and he had done so much slave trading that he was declared the richest man in Boston. Sarah's dad, James, continued the legacy. And so when Sarah was born, she was the third of 10 children, and her family was very wealthy. Also, during the Revolutionary War, they were loyalists. They are like, yes, Mommy Breton. And we're actually going to meet up with Sarah when she's a few years into her marriage. In 1781, when she was around 22, she married a dude named Perez Morton. Perez was a wealthy Bostonian. And like a lot of dudes we talk about from this period, he was a lawyer. And unlike Sarah's family, though, he was a patriot During the Revolutionary War, he had been involved in the Committee of Safety and the Committee of Correspondence. That were these kind of shadow governments where patriots would gather to figure out how to transition the cities to being independent American ones instead of stupid British ones. Later, he would get into politics. He would be the Massachusetts Attorney General and also the Speaker of the Massachusetts House of Representatives. But that's later. okay? currently he's just a lawyer, and married to Sarah. And they live in a big-ass brick mansion in the heart of Boston. You know, Sarah's writing her poems. They have five kids. They got an elite social circle. Perez is good friends with John Adams. They're popular. They're notable. But then it all gets undone because in the mid-1780s, Sarah's younger sister, Frances Apthorpe, who everyone called Fanny, came to live with them. And while she was living there, guess what happened? Uh, well, you don't have to guess because I already told you. Perez and Fanny started fucking. Oh, no. And we know this is a double no-no because, you know, not only is that cheating on your spouse, Perez, but because the two of them were in-laws at the time, that was considered incest. Yucky. And the thing is, though, no one really knows, you know, how did this affair start? You know, you could look at the power dynamics. You could look at Fanny. You know, when she came to live at the house, she was about 21, seven years younger than Sarah uh, and also 15 years younger than Perez. So we can just think about that for a second. Uh, You know, did this affair start because Perez is a big old pile of steaming donkey dung and used his power as the head of the house and a fancy notable lawyer pressure her into banging Uh, but at the same time was Fanny into it you know was she like fuck you Sarah I'm gonna fuck your husband while I live in your house you know what's the deal so in the course of the affair Fanny became pregnant and at the end of 1787 Fanny had a baby a little girl and the baby was taken outside Boston to be brought up secretly but the thing is it seems that even after the baby was born Fanny and Perez continued fucking around. And I mean, I'm not going to say that's all well and good, but I guess it would have been fine if nobody found out about it. I mean, obviously, the Morton household knew. Sarah knew about it. I can't imagine she was feeling great about her sister and her husband having an affair. But the thing is, it also doesn't seem like this was the best kept secret around the neighborhood and around Boston. Like, for example, one of the neighbors to the Mortons was this gal named Betsy. She happened to be the niece of Abigail Adams. And she was also a good friend of Fanny's. And at some point, Fanny wrote in her diary that Fanny was, quote, very unwell, which is a very dignified way to say that bitch is pregnant. There are other whispers and rumors spreading about the household. But then the affair became the talk of the town in Boston, Once the newspapers caught wind of what was happening and started publishing stories about it. So yeah, once this affair was out there in the open and everyone was talking about it, it was fucking stressful as hell. A lot was at stake, particularly for Fanny. You know, she could be ruined. She faced a lot of terrible things like she could be abandoned by her family. She could be completely disgraced in society. And the thing is, there weren't very many choices for disgraced poor women. She'd have to become a prostitute to support herself. She'd be destitute and all alone. And really, she was quite afraid that her family would leave her. Fanny and Sarah's dad, James, was pissed. But you know, what was he pissed about? Was he pissed about the affair and mad at Fanny? Or was he more pissed at Perez? While all this press was happening, it seemed that Fanny was cooped up in the Morton house. And, like, was that because she feared what her father would say to her? Or was it because Perez didn't want her to talk about the affair openly? Jeez Louise, I would hate to be in the middle of this situation. And then let's think about Sarah. You know, how is she feeling about the whole thing? It does seem that during the scandal that she did try to defend her sister. She actually did publish a poem in the newspaper under her pseudonym, That sympathized with Fanny's fear that her family would abandon her. The poem said, Where is the father fled with raptured breast? Where the fond mother in her offspring blessed? Ah, wretched child, no friends thy grief control. No melting parent soothes thy anguished soul. I don't like poetry. Anyway. And the thing is, what Fanny and Sarah's dad specifically wanted was for Fanny to publicly declare who knocked her up, a.k.a. Perez. But this was stressing Fanny the fuck out. You know, as I said, she was afraid she would be disowned, abandoned, hated by the public. But also, for whatever reason, she didn't want to name Perez. Instead of deciding what to do, on August 28th, 1788, she took a bunch of laudanum and died. We'll be right back after these soothing advertisements.
3: Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.
1: Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee.
2: On August 28, 1788, Fanny overdosed on laudanum and died. She was 22 years old. And despite this terrible tragedy, instead of, you know, giving the Apthorps and the Mortons space to grieve, the Bostonian public was still in a frenzy for info. The saga would not end. Because before Fanny had died, she had written a bunch of notes and letters about the turmoil she was facing. And then it seemed that she had a sneaky maid or something because no, who got their hands on those letters and notes? Some grubby handed journalists. I mean, are you a journalist if you're just printing gossip? I don't know. Or maybe if you think about it, the news, what is it? It's just gossip about the government and whatever. And the thing is, once they got those documents, no, what they did? They published them in the newspaper. Horrifying, but also for the public, so exciting. This was like their Epstein list. In one of the notes that Fanny had written, she apologized to her family, specifically to Sarah. She had written, "'I knew I was doing injury "'to one whom I supposed was all kindness to me. "'I pray her to forgive me as I forgive them "'who have done me nothing but injuries.' I request her not to place this crime to that of black ingratitude, for I am sensible of the obligations I was under to her. And then in a diary entry that was published, she was pleading with Perez. She said, in the name of the heaven, let not my sweet infant suffer. Take care of it, unhappy Morton, if you ever loved its mother. And the thing is, once these letters, notes, diary entries were published, all of it continued to snowball. More and more editorials were being published along with public comments. And people started pointing fingers because everyone in Boston was trying to figure out who to blame for Fanny's devastating death. You know, again, was Morton a big pile of donkey dung who had seduced and dishonored Fanny, his victim? Or, on the other side of it, Was Fanny just a crazy gal? In fact, the scandal was getting so frenzied. I mean, they probably weren't screaming like this, but it was getting so frenzied that an inquest was conducted in September and October of 1788 looking into Fanny's death to see if Perez was somehow at fault. And the inquest involved not just an investigation by the coroner, but also featured arguments in front of a jury. Perez had some notable supporters like former Massachusetts Governor James Bowden and John Adams. And it does seem that the Apthorps, they just wanted the scandal to go away. So the coroner came back and said that indeed she had died by deliberate suicide. And then a newspaper put out this notice in early October 1788. It said, We are happy to be able to announce to the public that the accusations brought against a fellow citizen in consequence of a late unhappy event, and which has been the cause of so much domestic calamity and public speculation, have, at the mutual desire of the parties, been submitted to and fully inquired into by their excellencies James Bowden and John Adams, and the result of their inquiry is that the said accusations have not been in any degree supported, and that therefore there is just ground for the restoration of peace and harmony between them. It would have been the wish of many that the extraordinary conduct of the deceased had been early attributed to the only accountable cause, an insane state of mind. This notice is just like, hey, guys, calm down. No need to gossip and speculate about Perez anymore. He's a good guy. He's fine. Fanny was just the insane one. And at this point, it does seem that the public was mostly on the side of Perez and was just assuming that Fanny had some sort of mental issue. So let's get to that nosy neighbor. Now, minding your own business is boring. Like, I love gossip, but clearly everything that was being written about Fanny probably put a lot of pressure on her, made her very stressed. But one dude went even further than writing editorials in a newspaper. His name was William Hill Brown. He lived near the Mortons. And like everyone in Boston, he was well acquainted with the scandal. He was the son of a clockmaker, one of the most celebrated in America. And despite, you know, being well acquainted with time, William clearly didn't understand the concept of too soon when at 24 years old in January 1789, mere months after Fanny's death, he published his novel called The Power of Sympathy. By the way, this is the sound of an old printing press. First of all, publishing specifically a novel at the time, that was a pretty big deal. People weren't really into novels yet. They thought they were suspicious. They're just like, why are you telling me this very long fake story? Weird. But this novel, it was a big deal. You know, technically it was the first American novel, meaning it was written by an American author, published by an American, and it was a story about Americans, And William Hill Brown, he knew people would be suspicious of a novel. So in the preface of the book, he's like, hey, yeah, this is a little story I made up in my whittle head. But at the same time, this book provides a great lesson in morality. He says the point of the book is to, quote, expose the fatal consequences of seduction and to inspire the female mind with a principle of self-complacency and to promote the economy of human life. Even before the book came out, William Hill Brown and his esteemed publisher, the printer Isaiah Thomas, decided that they would capitalize on the sensation of the Morton affair to promote the book. Ads for the novel started running in newspapers in January 1789, and those ads promised a connection between the scandal and the novel. And then once the novel was published, readers in Boston quickly saw that some of the events in the novel mirrored exactly what had happened in the Morton household. The way that the novel was written was in the form of 65 letters written between the various characters. And it's in letters 21 through 23, where there's a subplot similar to the Morton affair. It's the story of the unmarried Ophelia, who is seduced by her brother-in-law, Martin, and then Ophelia kills herself. Wow, not subtle at all. Also, come on, Ophelia, are you kidding me? Couldn't you be slightly more creative and do a hack Hamlet reference? And then also Martin instead of Morton. Like, you barely changed the name. Isaiah Thomas and William Hill Brown thought that capitalizing on the affair would make America's first novel a huge success. In fact, William thought it would be such a hit that he was afraid. He ended up publishing anonymously so that the powerful Perez Morton wouldn't come after him. And before the novel came out, there were rumors that Perez had indeed tried to concoct a plan to suppress the novel. No one knows exactly what he was trying to do. Maybe he was trying to pressure Isaiah Brown to not publish it, or he had a scheme to buy up all the books before anyone else could get them. But luckily for Perez Morton, it seems that he really didn't need to bother suppressing the book at all because the power of sympathy flopped and basically suppressed itself. No one was interested in buying it or reading it. And that's probably for a variety of reasons. One is that despite the fervor of the scandal in 1788, when the novel came out, the interest in the scandal was dying down. So people were probably like, wow, why are you still talking about this? This is old news. Also, as I was saying, everyone was very skeptical about novels and fiction. Americans were just not ready for this art form. Or maybe the book actually sucked, and that's why they weren't ready for it. Because soon after, this book came out. Another one came out called Charlotte Temple, and that got people reading. So The Power of Sympathy quickly went out of print and faded away until it was rediscovered as the first American novel in the mid-19th century. And then, because it was similar to the Morton Affair, a lot of literary people assumed that the anonymous author was actually Sarah. They were like, yeah, Sarah Wentworth Apthorpe Morton wrote this story about her sister. The real author wasn't discovered until 1894. There was this publisher who was trying to print and distribute more copies of the book, and he put Sarah's pseudonym on the front cover. That's when one of William Hill Brown's nieces came forward and was like, actually, uh, she didn't write it. My uncle dad. The Power of Sympathy wasn't the only art piece that got inspired by the scandal. In fact, in rural Bennington, Vermont, in April 1789, there was a school that staged a play called The Fatal Effects of Seduction, and the scandal was the main plot of the story. Ah. I just love the idea of someone's doing a school play about seduction and suicide. They're a bit more edgy in 1789 than they are now. So back in 1789... The power of sympathy came out. No one really seemed to care that much. But the Apthorps and the Mortons were still reeling from their loss and trying to figure out how they could restore their reputations. So Sarah and Fanny had a brother, Charles, and he was a naval officer. He decided that one way they could restore their reputation was to challenge Perez to a duel. Yes, a duel shall solve everyone's problems. So in January 1789, he went up to Perez and was like, so you want a duel or what? And once you're offered a duel, you really have no choice but to accept because of gentlemanly honor and all that. But the thing is, it seems that Perez and Charles, neither of them really wanted to do a duel. They were just like, this is just what you have to do. And it does seem that they might have made arrangements to have the duel stopped because when they showed up at the place where they were going to have the duel, the sheriff was there. And they're like, oh, no, I guess we can't shoot each other because the sheriff is here. Oh, dang. Yeah, we can't reschedule. My schedule is packed. I simply just cannot fit another duel in my calendar. I just don't have another dawn available until, like, many years from now. I think it's curious that after Fanny died, that's when Sarah started publishing more of her poems. She released several books of poetry over the next decade. And I do wonder if her sister's death had anything to do with her decision to publish more. I wonder if Perez before had been like, ugh, women publishing? That's so impolite. I don't like that. No woman will publish in my house. But then after the scandal, maybe Sarah had this leverage and was like, bruh, you can't tell me what to do anymore. You fucked my sister and she killed herself. I'm going to publish some poems. And despite everything, Sarah and Perez stayed together. I mean, technically, they could have divorced, but that probably would have caused more of a scandal. So they were married until Perez's death in 1837. Sarah died in 1846 at the age of 86. She outlived Perez and all of her five children. We know that she and Perez had their last child in 1787, just six months before Fanny had hers. I mean, they could have had more, but I guess there's something about your husband having your sister's kid. That's a bit of a turnoff. But in Sarah's poetry, she does hint at why she stayed with Perez. As one common subject in her work is a mother's obligation to her children, no matter what, and the necessity of female resignation. Yikes. But the thing is, it does seem that Sarah had some sort of agency in all of this. Because after the scandal went down, Sarah had an affair. And who was that affair with? None other than American filth favorite, Governor Morris. Bang, 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 bang. Ah, as with every American filth episode, we learn a lesson. And I think the lesson for today is... If you feel like writing a novel about your neighbor's affair and suicide, maybe wait more than like four or five months after it happened. Give it a little room to breathe. Anyway, this has been American Filth. We'll be back next week. American Filth is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcast. It's hosted by me, Gabby Watts. I wrote and sound designed this episode. Our theme song is by me and Jesse Nieswanger. Our senior producer is Amelia Brock, and our executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and LC Crowley. You can follow along with the pod on Instagram at American Filth Pod. Also, leave a review. Leave a rating. Leave a comment. Do something. Promote the algorithm. Blah, 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 blah. Talk at you next week. <laughs> school of humans
1: right here right now find your beautiful new floor at right rug flooring choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee